All right, here we go. Let's say that you decide to walk to the store and you're going to buy a soda. For you to get there, you have to cross the halfway point on your trip, right? No problem, makes perfect sense. But from that halfway point, you still will have to now cross another halfway point on the way there, which at that point would be about three quarters of your journey, right? Then you'll have to cross the halfway point of that distance and then the halfway point of the next smaller distance. Everybody tracking with me? So if you think this through, if you keep dividing your trip into halfway points, you will never actually be across the halfway point, ever. In fact, you'll never actually get to the store. Now, if you're a teenager, you might want to use this at some point when you're late for curfew. Mom, I'm halfway there, but I, I can't seem to get home. And if you're a parent, you can remind them, yet somehow we wind up at the store, don't we? This is a paradox. How is this actually possible? It's, it's actually a famous paradox. Um, it's called the dichotomy paradox. You can check it out online. How do you solve it? There's math involved in it. You don't want to go through it this morning. But it is, it is kind of fun. But I will let you go home this Thanksgiving week and figure it out. What a wonderful example, though. The, of paradox, the kind of paradox we've been talking about over these last few weeks. Now, I'll explain why in a second, but a paradox, if you haven't been with us, a paradox, and you know this from your, your high school English class, right, is what seems to be an absurd or self-contradictory statement or, or proposition put forth that when you investigate it or it's explained to you, proves out somehow to be well-founded or true. I can never actually get past the halfway point to the grocery store Yet, I'm at the grocery store. Jesus, paradoxically said, whoever tries to keep their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life will preserve it. Whoever loses their life, right? I mean, whoever loses their life should lose it. Whoever keeps splitting the difference in half, right, should never get to the grocery store. That would make perfect sense, actually, until you realize that you can get there. And then it doesn't make sense anymore until you realize maybe that in giving your life away somehow, in ways that aren't easily explained, you found it. This is why I've been saying over, over, over and over, paradoxes have such power. I mean, if you just assume, right, the one side of the dichotomy paradox was true, you would never leave your house to get the soda. Why bother getting up? I can't get there. I can show you the math. I can't get to the store. You'd live your whole life thirsty. Yet, here's the paradox, the big gulp was just sitting down there at 7-Eleven waiting for you. Unless, of course, you live in New York City where they have outlawed the big gulp. But you never got it because you never left home. See, the power of the paradox is that in coming to believe something is paradoxical, right? Well, in that example, you would leave your house, even though it didn't seem to make sense. The power of the paradox of Jesus is that you, when, it's, when it's proven to you, right, that's the power in it, you, would, you might be willing to give your life away in order to gain life. That's why a paradox has unique power to get you to change the way you think. And it is hard to get us red-blooded Americans to change the way we think. Most of us base our lives, our careers, our families, the way we parent our kids, the way we love our spouses, right? The way we relate to God. We base these things on commonly held, shared assumptions. 
The power of the parallax, right, is that it can get you to change what it is you believe, and then it could change who it is that you actually are, how you live, how you love, how you have your being. Now, as we've looked at the Christian faith, I mean, it's just loaded. It's, it's unbelievable. It's so much fun, actually, if you, if you want to have a fun little Bible study. The Christian faith is loaded with paradoxes. We've gone over a lot of them in this series. And I've been arguing, I think the most prevalent one, in the prevalent paradox in the scripture, one that now so, secular social scientists are studying and they are proving to be, to, 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 that it is verifiably and statistically true, it's a paradox that they call the generosity paradox. And it is, as I've shown you, I hope, all over the scriptures from the Old Testament to the New. My friend Loretta this week was doing uh, her devotions, and she texted me a picture of her Bible reading for the day. It was right out of the Old Testament, one of these um, paradoxical generation, um, generosity paradoxes, the one we've looked at maybe most often, Proverbs chapter 11. One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. So my, my friend, maybe the Lord was speaking to her. Maybe he's speaking to all of us about this. So week one in our series, right, we studied the paradox, where you find it in the scriptures, what the secular social scientists are now revealing. The best book on this topic I've shared with you um, is a book called The Paradox of Generosity by Dr. Christian Smith and Hilary Davidson. Fascinating book, super fun if you're into this kind of thing. Their conclusion, again, being verified by academic studies, and last week I read to you some of the schools that are studying this, some of the most prestigious academic institutions in the world. All of them are coming to the conclusion is that generosity does not do for you what you would naturally think, what everybody would assume it would do for you. Because you would think that if you, you gave freely, you would have a net loss, that if you took time off of your calendar or money out of your pockets or love from your heart and you just gave it away, the balance in your personal ledger would go down. And so it would be a net loss to you and maybe best case it would just be like a zero-sum game if, if somebody else benefited proportionally, maybe culturally, societally, it would be a zero-sum game, but that's not what all of the science shows. Here's their conclusion. I shared it with you last week. I want to give it to you one more time. Not so, they said, not at all. The reality of generosity is instead actually paradoxical. Generos generosity does not usually work in simple zero-sum win-lose ways. The results of generosity are often instead unexpected, counterintuitive, win-win. Rather than generosity producing net losses, in general, the more generously people give of themselves, the more of many goods they receive in turn. Now, sometimes they receive more of the same kind of thing that they gave, money, time, attention, and so forth. But more often, and importantly, generous people tend to receive back goods that are even more valuable than those they gave. Health, happiness, a sense of purpose in life, and personal growth. My favorite quote, people rightly say that money cannot buy happiness, but money and happiness are still related in a curious way. We need to live into the paradox of generosity. We need to learn to share our resources generously with others, and then in turn, we will likely find ourselves happier, healthier, and more purposeful in life. The data examined here shows this to be more than simply a nice idea. It is a social scientific fact. Fascinating. Now, in this series, I introduced you to, getting away from the social scientists, back to the scripture, the apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, most of the New Testament after you get past the Gospels, and the book of Acts is Paul's letters to various churches. 
And he was writing what's known as 2 Corinthians. It's the second letter to a church in the city of Corinth. And in there is the longest single discussion on generosity in the Bible. And it has what I've shared with you, I think, is maybe the preeminent verse on the paradox and the most, the most used and abused verse on the paradox. Here's, here's what Paul wrote to them. He goes, remember this. Why do you need to remember this? Because it's a paradox. It doesn't make sense. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. Now, prosperity preachers have been using for generations this verse to convince, you know, your grandma, my grandma, to quote, I could just, you know, hear, hear the southern twang, you need to sow a seed of generosity into the ministry because God promises to reward you. If you would send me your $50, I'll send you this oil, and, and you will sow a seed, and God will reward you with multiples back of the money you send in. And they quote this often repeated scriptural truth. Sow a seed, reap a harvest. You see that in the scripture in many places. But as we've seen, if you were here, this is neither the context for this verse. They are taking it out of context. The context Paul was using was the history of the Israelite people regarding God's provision of manna in the desert. He was equating to the church in Corinth, a, a wealthy church, who, who he was encouraging to share with, with the Judean church that was going through a very difficult time. He was encouraging them to look at their money like manna, like the Israelites had, had, had to rely on God's provision in the desert. He was equating their money to the manna. Nor does it even make sense metaphorically. Nobody goes out and sows seeds to hope to get back more seeds. You sow seeds in anticipation of getting back something better, more valuable, more wanted, more enjoyable, more life-sustaining than seed. In fact, think about this. The whole point of the seed is to be planted, to, to invest it, to, to sow it, because it's in the letting go that you get back the fruit, something better. Now, here's the problem, right? You'll never let go of the seed until you believe that the harvest to come, what you'll reap generously, you will never open your hand if you don't want the fruit and believe that it's good. So last week, we spent time looking at that fruit. In order to let go of the seed, right, you have to have a vision. You have to be able to see the crop, the harvest. Now, as we've seen, here's what the secular studies are showing, right? That generous people, they reap generously five things. Happiness, bodily health, purpose in living, avoidance of depression, and interest in personal growth. I showed you all the charts and the graphs on it last week. Very interesting, at least I think. But wait, as the infomercials say, there is even more. Jesus understood this truth, and he addressed it head on. Jesus, again, paradoxically, spoke more about money than you could imagine. Nearly two-thirds of his parables are related to money and, and, and related social justice issues. And yet Jesus, who spoke about it more than almost anyone, never asked for a nickel from anyone. Now Jesus, right after the parable of the rich young ruler, yet another parable about money, he tells the disciples, some of you have heard this, he goes, you know, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, right then, the disciples, right, they hear that, and we hear it, and, and, and you know, relative to, relative to the world, everybody in this room, relative to the history of the world, is a rich, a rich man or woman. We hear that, and it, it's a little troubling, right? So the disciples, 
who often have a what's in it for me mentality, they say, huh, well, we want to see the harvest, Jesus. Peter, he always speaks up first. I think the other guys thought it, and Peter always just gives words to it. Impetuous Peter says, well, Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. Now, here comes Jesus again, stating the paradox. He doesn't shame Peter. He doesn't go, how dare you, Peter? You self-centered morons, do you know what I'm about to have to do for you? Doesn't do anything for that. He sets a vision for the harvest to come. He goes, Peter, I know you guys have left everything. Let me show you. And he goes, truly, I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes and brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. Along with persecutions, which is interesting, later Paul would say, count them all joy. This is the one that gets left off of the late night shows. Along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus would encourage his followers. The social scientists say you get these five things back. Jesus would say, but there's even something, wait, there's more. You are building up in the kingdom to come. Great reward. You know the verse. You know what he said. Do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and seal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where th thieves don't break in and steal. I think Jesus would say what he wants us to believe what he wants us to see, because you won't let go of the seed. What he wants you to see is the fruit. And if, if you saw it, I, I think he would say, if you could just see it, you would realize how silly it is to keep holding on to the seed. And then finally, Paul taught the Corinthians that in sharing our blessing, in, in seeing that, that really what we've been giving is nothing more than manna that God has given unto us, it can't be stored if we would just simply participate in the passing along of these things. We would reap, we would get back righteousness. Quote from that, that, that long writing in 2 Corinthians, and God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all, in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. He was quoting from the Psalms, and, and as we looked at last week, when he's speaking about righteousness, he's talking about relational healing and being generous you make right the relationships on earth between people in being generous, in letting go of the seed and spreading it. You heal a broken world. There will be one day no rich and no poor. There will one day be no haves and have-nots. And you can be the answer to your own prayer on earth as it is in heaven as you let go. The fruit of generosity is the healing of the world. And so here, here's my very serious question. Jesus warned us about greed. He goes, be on the lookout for it, watch out for greed. And then he encourages generosity. Jesus and many of the authors in the scripture describe and tell us to trust in this paradox of generosity. Believe in it, that in giving we would receive and in, letting, or in grasping we lose. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you're just checking him out, wrestling with him, and you should wrestle, I mean... You should wrestle with Jesus. These are, these are things worthy of wrestling with. If you, if you want to look at the science, if you want to just follow the science, the science is settled. You should live lives of generosity. But as we looked at last week, we don't. 
the vast majority of us, over 86% of us, give, give away less than 2% of our income. And so I closed last week and I said, why do we do that? What's, why? I wrestled with it as I thought about it. I'm like, okay, why do we do that? What, why do I struggle to be generous? And so I'll tell you what I see in me. Um, maybe, maybe you'll see it a little bit in yourself too. I don't know. Uh, I, I, a new friend I met with a few weeks ago, new, our, new to our church, and, and, and he's trying to figure out, he wants, he's interested in, in, in maybe becoming a follower of Jesus, and he's wrestling with it, and I, I love it. And he said, John, could you boil it all down, right? If you were just going to boil it down, boil, boil what it means to follow Jesus down to one thing, what would it be? And I said, well, uh, I, I came to know who Jesus was and believe who he was when I was 18 years old. And so now for, you know, 40 years or so, I've been following him. I've served in, in full-time ministry now for almost 20 years. And, and if I was going to boil this all down to one word, the word would be this, trust. Trust. Do I trust, do I trust what I think, what I feel, what I want? Do I trust me to be God of me? Or do I let go of all of those things and instead trust God by trusting not in what I think, but what he says? Not what in, in what I feel, but what he has shown and demonstrated. Not in what I want. I'm not going to trust in what I want from him, but he, what he wants for me. Do I trust that he's good and he's for me? And in that goodness, and, in, and believe and trust that his will for my life is way better than my own. Trust. This is the core of Christianity for me, and it's why most of us, why most of us struggle with the generosity paradox. Because this is the first and primary sin. Adam and Eve, they live in this state of perfection in the garden. But that state of perfection depended on them trusting God to be God, allowing him to be who he is. The temptation for them, the sin, was a desire to be a God for themselves to determine for themselves what was right and what was wrong, to wrest control away from God over themselves and over their worlds. They wanted, essentially, to trust themselves. Now, I know we put it on our money, right? That, you know, we, we trust in God. I know as Christians, we, we, we often declare that we trust in God. Let go and let God. But do we? Do we really trust in God? See, I know, I know we trust God with things like our eternities and with our health and, and with our kids' futures. But here's what I, I've noticed about me. Maybe it'll resonate with you. It is very easy to trust God with the things I can't control myself. I can't control my eternal destination, and so I have to trust God with it, right? I can't control many elements of my, my health. I have to trust God with it. I can't control what the future holds for my children. So, so in some sense, I have to trust God with it. I trust him with all the things I can't control. But in the areas of my life and in your life where I can choose to trust myself, in the areas of my life where I actually can control things, places like, think about this, right? Places like what I do with my body, my sexuality, my money, my time. In times like that, deciding to, in places like that, deciding to trust God, to follow him in places where I can make a choice that I think is better, 
It will make me happier. And there's lots of them. Staying in difficult marriages, right, and not walking away, or, or choosing to forgive radically somebody that has hurt us. In those places where we don't have to trust, where we can trust ourselves and follow our own hearts, where we can go with our own feelings, we often do that. We go with our gut, with, with what we want for ourselves, and not what he wants for us. We go with the commonly held belief. I should, I should, I deserve this. I should be happy. This is, again, why what we do with our bodies, our money, is, is so often talked about in the scriptures and it is because it is so revealing of our hearts. It's very revealing of mine. I would even argue, if you want to take this, I think about this principle a lot, right? Like, it's easy for me to trust God with things that I can't control. It's hard for me to give him trust over the areas that I can control. But then I'll even take it the next step. Right? I, would, I would argue, even in areas where we have no control over, over things, like our eternities and our health, even there, we don't really trust God with them, but instead, we try to make deals with God about them. We, we use our faith or our religion and our, our good works to get him to do for us what we want him to do. We use religion in a very real sense to try to give us control over God. Trying to be, even then, even then, trying to be a God unto ourselves. I performed for him, and now he owes me. I, I'll trust in my performance for God, in my, in my goodness. I'm a good person, and, and I, don't I deserve to get? Friends, this, this morning, I just want you to see, there is nothing more tempting to do with this with than money. This is why Jesus told us to watch out, be on the lookout for it. Because money competes with God for our trust. Now, let's just be honest. Money is powerful. Like, you know, I like money. I worry I love money. And here's why. Because money and God often promise the same thing. Have you ever thought about it? This is why it's so hard to be generous. Money promises to make you like God. Here's what money promises. You know this, and we could add this, all we could do this all day long. Money promises power, right? Security, I don't have to worry. Control, I can take care of a lot of things now. Comfort, worth, right? I'll evaluate my self-worth. Other people will look at me a certain way based on how much money I have. Opportunity in my life, influence, fun, experiences, freedom, prestige, it does, and let's be honest. Money actually will come through on a lot of those promises. You have to be honest. This is why we struggle to be generous. Uh, I, I mean, it does, but here's the thing about money. The first is money actually makes no promises uh, like, like generosity. It doesn't, doesn't say anything about happiness or health or purpose. And second, it makes no promises about eternities like Jesus did. Jesus, Jesus is... Talk about generosity had, had, had all to do with thinking about the kingdom to come. With, with money, money's promises are all temporal. It's all for now. And then finally, money held onto, right, and not kind of passed through. Money hoarded, not generously given away. It contributes to the brokenness of the world. It's not healing. And so money competes with God. And many of us trust it more. Now here's the second thing. Some of you know this. Money promises to make you your own God. It, it promises to give you power and security and control and comfort. But money lies. 
It's a liar. Money does not let you be your own God. Money becomes your God. You believe you're going to get all these things, power and security and control and identity, and when you think it comes from money, you will eventually do anything you can to get it. And in so doing, you will serve it, which should sound familiar if you're a follower of Jesus. Jesus understood this. I think it was a primary concern for him regarding us. Right after saying, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, right? But, but store them up in heaven. Money is like manna. It wasn't meant to be stored or, or spread around. It was meant to be spread around generously and equitably, like the manna, right? The hoarding of it will rot and destroy your soul. Right after explaining this to, to uh, his followers, here's what Jesus said. He goes, listen, no one can serve two masters. Either you're going to hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Don't you see by the way we live our lives, we are, we are validating this truth. I think at first, right, at its heart, the reason we struggle with generosity is we've trusted a different master. See, we thought we were trusting ourselves, right? It's like, well, if I just get enough, I just, if I just keep enough, if I hold on to enough. But we get duped. And so when I read this and when I think through my struggles with generosity, I ask myself, who do you love? Who do you hate? Bigger question, who do you believe? Who do you trust? Nothing reveals this like what we do with our bodies and our money. Now, I hope I have you convinced. I, I'm trying to convince me too. But if after these few weeks you get to a place where you're at least willing to give this a try, to test it, it's the only place in the scriptures where God says, I want you to test me in this, to give it a shot. I, I want to help you do that. I want to help you move towards generosity to trust Jesus and the science. And so here's what I'm going to, where I'm gonna get incredibly practical, right? Last week, based on these verses in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 that we've gone over over these last couple weeks, I gave you what I think is a pretty detailed definition of generosity. Here's what I said. I said, generosity is the eager and joyful, purposeful, premeditated, calculated, dedicated, giving away of God's resources in sacrificial proportion to what you've been entrusted with. Now, I wanna I want just pull that apart before we wrap up. And can I be honest, the first part is the one I struggle with the most, where, I, where my heart gets revealed to me by the Lord the most. Eager and joyful. Many followers of Jesus, a lot of, a lot of wonderful friends of mine, uh, they take seriously the encouragement to give money away. Many of them do tithe. Many of them take that concept uh, of 10%. But if I'm honest, I think a lot of us do this out of a spirit, a spirit of obedience or, or obligation. Obedience is good. But if our hearts aren't right, if there's no joy in our hearts as we give, if you don't smile as you, as you push send, right? If you're not excited to do it, here's what I think Jesus would say. Don't bother. Don't, don't do it. Remember, he never asked anybody for money. He doesn't need it. He never asks anybody for their money. He just asks for their hearts. And money reveals them like nothing else. 
We saw it over and over, right? Paul says, I'm not commanding you. He doesn't do that with any other sin. This is different. And so before we go any further, this Thanksgiving week, can I encourage you? Can I encourage you to pause and just be a grateful people? A community filled with gratitude. You live in Morris County, New Jersey in the 21st century. You were born on third base and you think you hit a triple, to use the old saying. Right? We've all been given the golden ticket. Will you, in light of what God has done for you, what Jesus has done for you, remember how, how Paul opened this discussion on, on the generosity paradox? Here's what he said to the Corinthians. He goes, I'm not commanding you. I shouldn't have to command you to be generous. Here's why. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Step one, and, and if you can't get past step one, this is, this is where you need to spend the time. Step one on, on becoming generous is you can't be generous out of duty or obligation or even obedience. And obedience is good. But you have to be generous out of a grateful heart. For you do know, many of you, the grace of our Lord Jesus and what he did for you. And you are eager out of anticipation for what you would, what you would receive back, what you will reap. The Macedonian church that, that Paul keeps, this poor church that eagerly and joyfully was giving to this church in, in Judea that was struggling. Paul goes, they eagerly and joyfully lined up to give stuff away, and they give it out of their poverty. You got to get your heart right. If you're going to be generous, you've, it's, it's a heart issue, number one. It's like, it's, like, it's like, don't go on. Just stop there and work on that one. Now, if you get your heart right, right, I, I would encourage you, this can be remarkably fun. Uh, my friend Dave was telling me about a principle that, that he became aware of, um, and, and it was along this line. I, I would encourage you to sit down with, with your spouse or, or with your kids. I just want my kids to be happy, okay? Train them in generosity. Train them to be generous. And so I would say with, with hearts full of joy and eager anticipation about what God could do with, you, with what you've been given, here's the first thing I would do. I would decide on the purpose for your generosity. What is going to be the purpose of your generosity? Now to do that, right, I would, I would tell you to ask yourself two questions. The first is, what thrills your heart? What makes your heart race? What gets you excited? And then the second is, what breaks your heart? If the gospel, if what Jesus has done for you thrills your heart, then I think, based on the totality of Scripture, and this is the one time I'll talk about it in the whole series, because it's not a series on giving, it's a series on understanding this principle, this heart principle of generosity, right? If what Jesus has done thrills you, then I think you should support your local church significantly. That should be where your first fruits go. As we talked about in the New Testament, that to tithe isn't commanded, but that, that doesn't mean it wasn't a good model for how you should designate your generosity. So, so first, purpose. I think purpose for Christ followers should be their local church. But second then, se please hear this. Second then would be, to, would be other things that thrill or break your heart. This is the fun part. This is the place where you get excited about what your giving will mean, the harvest it could produce. For Joan and I, this has been our ministry in Guatemala, in, in Potter's house. 
I've been sponsoring a child in Potter's house for nearly 20 years. The first time Joan and I went down there, our hearts were absolutely ripped apart, could not stop crying. It broke our hearts. And so first we significantly, we significantly support um, our church, our local church, which would be this church, right? And then we support and have supported for a very long time what breaks our hearts. And so for us, that's what's going on in Guatemala. I have a, a friend that, that, that was just there this week. He, my friend doesn't sponsor, he's funny, he doesn't sponsor one kid, he sponsors like 10 kids. And uh, this weekend we were talking about going to a football game together and he said he couldn't go because he was flying to Guatemala to watch his kids that he sponsors graduate high school. Right? What thrills your heart? What breaks your, your heart? Don't you see the power of generosity and how the world is healed? And, and, and your soul stops rotting? So that's the fun part, right? Once you decide to trust the generosity paradox, right? You, you give, you say, I'm going to give it a try. Pick your purpose. Next, you have the eager and joyful, purposeful, now premeditated. Friends, generosity is premeditated. These are not random acts of giving. Last week I was telling you, you know how you stay up, if you're like me, you stay up too late sometimes and the, the dog commercial comes on and the dogs are shivering and they're playing in the arms of the angels and it's like, all right, you know. Um, this week, I, Joan and I were sitting down watching TV, and Save the Elephants came on, and they, they had the, 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 little, the little elephants running around, right, and the music was playing. Generosity is premeditated. It is not a random act of giving. It's not a generous action. It is a lifestyle. It, it's spontaneous. Or, excuse me. It, it's, it's not spontaneous. Greedy people, right? Greedy people can give spontaneously if, if they think it would help them. Generosity, premeditated giving is not moved simply by emotional appeals. In fact, I would tell you, if you premeditate your giving, right, if you are a generous person, you actually will feel freedom from the guilt of not giving because you will already put the time into this. You will have thought it through. You can say, right, without guilt, listen, my, I, I, I can't help you right now because I'm helping, I'm, I'm helping a bunch of other stuff. So it's not just, well, I'm a Christian and what the church does thrills my heart. I see it's powerful. I think that the hope of the, it's the hope of the world, right? So if they ask, if the church asks, yeah, it's a good church. And if the church asks, maybe if they took a special offering, then I'd give. I don't know. Generous people premeditate their giving. This is, by the way, all in the social science too. Next, generosity is calculated and designated. In other words, you sit down with your spouse. I, I, this, would be, this is such a great way to teach your children. You sit down with your kids, and you train them in this because you want them to be happy. You calculate how much you can give after you've decided on your purpose, how much you can give to each purpose, and then you designate it for that purpose. You put it in a lockbox. Nothing else touches this. In other words, your generosity is not whimsical, right? It's not circumstantial. I'll give if and when I have, well, you know, if I have something left over, then I'll give. It's not based on my circumstances. I'll get, I'll, 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 you know, it, by the way, this is why generosity is a keystone habit because it forces personal growth in relation to these areas like budgeting and personal financial responsibility. I know I'm going to have the money to give if I calculate it, if I budget it and designate it. 
It's not like cushion. It's like, oh, I got a little extra with this money. I'll give some away. It's not what's left over if I don't have a better option. Well, I was going to be generous, but it's a girl's trip to Nashville, so what am I going to do? Right? You designate the money. Paul told the Corinthians, remember, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. You should give what you've decided to give, what you've calculated, what you've designated to give, and then you should give it. Generosity, eager and joyful, purposeful, premeditated, calculated, dedicated, giving away of God's resources in sacrificial proportion to what one, with what one has been entrusted with. How much money should I give away? Well, both the scriptures and social science say it won't benefit you. The paradox breaks down if you aren't giving eagerly and joyfully. So that's guide number one. So if your first question is, how much should I give to get this to go? You need to go back to step one, right? If you're begrudging giving, don't do it. But Paul, in the same passage, told the Corinthians this. He said, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. In other words, being generous is not about the absolute amount of generosity. It's about the relative amount. Jesus once sat around in the temple. And everybody in the temple would come in, they would have these big offering areas, and, and people would come in, and the, the, the rich and the powerful would come in, and they'd place very publicly their offerings into these things, and they wanted to hit people to go, wow, wow, look at that. And then Jesus and the guys are sitting there, and along, waiting in the line, comes this woman. And you gotta remember the grandeur of the temple. I mean, the temple was, the temple was a... a, a, a a marvel of, of, of construction. It was gigantic. And she came along into this place filled with majesty, and she waited in the line with everybody giving their big expensive gifts, getting all of the, uh, of the praise from the people, and she drops in what the, the, the Bible describes as a mite, a pittance. And it was right then where Jesus says, everybody stop everything. Look at that. Look at that. That's what I'm looking for. That's what true giving is. That's what generosity is. And so maybe, you know, I, I don't know what anybody's financial condition is in the church. Maybe you come into our church and you go, well, this is a beautiful church. It's a nice place. Look at this. place doesn't need any of my money. I get it. But that's not what this is about. This is, this is not about, uh, you know, oh, you know, I, why would I even bother? It's not going to make a difference. That's not what this is about. We were to give, according to the scripture, right, premeditated and calculated, dedicated, and you do it with this concept of percentages in mind, not dollars. Don't look at the dollars. God doesn't look at the dollars. If you have $100 million in the bank and you're like giving $100,000 away and you're going, man, look how generous I am. I gave $100,000 away. Jesus is not sitting in the temple going, stop, everybody, look. That's not what it's about. So I, I want to challenge you. It's the, end of, it's the end of this series. It's the end of the year. There is no better time to be generous. And so, if you take any of this stuff seriously, and I think you should, Jesus was worried that we wouldn't, I would encourage you to set up a family meeting to, to work through these principles. Make sure before you even sit down, or, or as soon as you do, to start with gratitude and joy. Make sure that you see and you show your children the harvest, and you go, look, that's what this will reap. Jesus wanted you to look at the harvest. You'll never let go of the seed. And then I'd encourage you to start where you can. If you're like, oh, man, I, I'm just, I got no money, then I, I don't know, pick, a, pick something. $50, right? You got six weeks left in the week. Pick $50 a week. 
You and your kids, come up with, with the $50, figure out how you're going to get it, and then get excited about it. Make it fun. Pick your purposes. Look at the harvest. Trust in the paradox. And then next year, right, money is like manna. Come up with a plan. Be on a budget. Be serious about it. Much hangs in the balance for you and your kids and, and others. January is going to be here in a few weeks. Be purposeful and premeditated and calculated and dedicated and sacrificial. You will not stumble into being a generous person. It won't be like, oh, wait, you wake up one day and you go, oh, who knew? Now I'm generous. You have to make the decision to trust Jesus. If you're not a follower of Jesus, just trust the science. If you are a follower of Jesus, trust both and watch what happens. And then just this one final thing. It's Christmas. Somehow when it becomes like September, it's Christmas. But it's Christmas. And, and as followers of God, I don't know if you've thought this through, God actually never asks us to do anything that he hasn't already done for us on our behalf. We're made in his image, you know. And so let me leave you with one final paradox this Christmas about generosity. I, I, I'm not sure as I've reflected on this in these last couple of weeks that I'll ever see Christmas the same way again. Paul closes this this is in the same thing on giving. This is the last line in this teaching on generosity, the longest one in the Bible. Here's the last line. He goes, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. It's Jesus. God's indescribable gift. In, in just a few weeks, we will celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. And yet, here's the thing. Did you know this? Jesus wasn't actually born. Jesus Christ was given. He's always been. He's the only baby that was born older than his parents. He existed before they were born. Again, the paradoxes are everywhere. You see it over and over in the scriptures. Can I just introduce it to you this holiday season? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son and that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Isaiah 9, 6, we talk about it at Christmas time all the time. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. How about Romans 8, 32? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Jesus Christ, the apple of the Father's eye, the jewel of heaven, God's greatest treasure. And he gave it away. He gave him away. And in so doing, what Paul is saying is if you will trust this Jesus, if you will trust him, you will receive every other gift. And so this Christmas, this is life. And so I encourage you, as we, as we kind of wrap this concept up, go and trust God and serve him don't trust yourself and live into the paradox of generosity. Let's stand and close this on.